Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello, and welcome to In Social Work. I'm Charles Sims, the host for this episode. Compassion fatigue has been the subject of considerable concern in the social work profession. The provision of service to people who are experiencing a highly stressful situation or set of circumstances can take a significant emotional toll on those providing assistance. However, few experiences are more stress-invoking than the loss of a child. In this episode, Dr. Joanne Cacciatore and Kara Thielman discuss their research with the professionals and volunteers that provide service to parents who have experienced a child's death. Joanne Cacciatore, Ph.D., is an associate professor at the Arizona State University School of Social Work, where she studies all aspects of traumatic grief. She has written extensively and presented nationally and internationally on her work. She is also the founder of the international nonprofit group, the Miss Foundation, which aids families whose children have died or are dying. Dr. Cacciatore received her doctorate in Children, Youth, and Family from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and her Master's of Social Work and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Arizona State University. Kara Thielman is a third-year doctoral student at Arizona State University School of Social Work. She received a bachelor's of arts degree in psychology and anthropology from Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and her master's of social work with a specialization in adult health and mental health from Arizona State University. Ms. Thielman has experience as a grief counselor for bereaved parents and families and as a hospice social worker. Her research interests include traumatic loss, grief, death and dying, and mindfulness-based approaches as a practice framework for clinicians and as an intervention for clients. In this discussion, Dr. Cacciatore and Ms. Thielman review the findings of their research, some of which you might find surprising. They identify and suggest the use of mindfulness as an important skill for social workers practicing in the area of traumatic bereavement. They also describe a framework for self-care for those working in those challenging settings. Additionally, Dr. Cacciatore suggests the need for professional human service and medical training programs of all types be more deliberate in their training on trauma and death. Dr. Cacciatore and Ms. Thielman were interviewed in August of 2014 by Norit Fisher Schirmer, a doctoral student at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Hello, I'm Norit Fisher Schirmer, a PhD student in the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Here with me to talk about mindfulness and compassion fatigue among traumatic braverant volunteers and professionals are PhD student Kara Thielman 
and Dr. Joanne Cacciatore from the Arizona State University School of Social Work. Thank you for joining us today. The first question I wanted to ask you is if you can tell me a little bit about the background of the study and the theoretical framework. Sure. How about if I talk about the background of the study, Kira, and then you can address the theoretical framework? Sure. So the background of the study was born from my area of research and practice, and I work with primarily parents who've experienced the death of a child at any age and from any cause, from birth to grown adult children who have died. So we noticed that we have a lot of volunteers in the organization that provides support to these families, and we wanted to study the effects of their involvement because not only were the great majority of them bereaved parents themselves, but they were also either professionals or paraprofessionals and had been working with us for an extended period of time in providing aid to other parents. So we wondered what are the effects after looking at some of the research on, for example, Red Cross volunteers and other volunteers who work in what we would call high emotional risk jobs, either as a volunteer or as a professional, where you have high attrition rates because of the, the deep, intense psychological effects of such work. And so Kira and I got there talking about the possibility of studying the population and seeing basically how they were doing emotionally and in their own lives. And if, in fact, working or volunteering in this specific area put them at risk for adverse psychological and social outcomes. Okay. And regarding the theoretical framework, Kara? Yes. Well, Dr. Kestori touched on some of it, the idea that uh, exposure to the traumatic experiences of others can cause things like secondary traumatic stress and burnout in volunteers and professionals who work with those populations. We also wanted to look at mindfulness, though, because there's been a lot of research on the positive effects of mindfulness. For instance, in many studies have shown that it improves psychological well-being and improves emotional regulation. And so we were interested in seeing if mindfulness was related to compassion fatigue and compassion satisfaction. And we had some ideas about what we might find there. Can you elaborate a little bit about compassion fatigue and the two aspects that it comprises? Yeah, so compassion fatigue is defined as a reduced capacity for empathy toward clients resulting from repeated exposure to their trauma. And so it's thought to encompass two aspects, secondary trauma, also known as vicarious trauma, and burnout. Secondary trauma includes many of the symptoms that we see in the post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. So symptoms of hyperarousal, intrusion, avoidance. And on the other hand, burnout has more to do with experiencing intense interpersonal situations where there's high distress and high emotional demands. And it's often expressed more as um, emotional exhaustion. So not some of the trauma symptoms, but just the sense of not really being connected to what you're doing anymore and just being exhausted with what you're doing. Did you find a lot of similarities between the PTSD symptoms 
uh, in clients and the compassion fatigue in the service providers that you're working with? We didn't measure anything with the client, so I wouldn't know if, if they're specifically the same. And we used a different measure. So we used the professional quality of life scale. It has a subscale for burnout and for secondary traumatic stress. Some of the items are the same. So, for instance, it asks whether you jump or are startled by unexpected sounds, and that's something similar to hyperarousal in a PTSD diagnosis. Okay, very interesting. What is the relevance of uh, your study to social work and other helping professionals? Well, I'm happy to address that. Part of the most salient issue, in my opinion, in mental health services and even community care to families, specifically families who have experienced traumatic grief, is that oftentimes providers are not getting the pedagogical training they need to prepare them for working with this population out in the field. This is a very unique and very vulnerable subset in not only academic research, but also in clinical practice. And given that, we actually know as a whole, we actually know very, very little. Very few graduate students, when they graduate, are prepared to deal with this population. So part of what we saw as incredibly important is, okay, so once they go out into the field, if they're not prepared to deal with this, how could this potentially affect them? And can mindfulness and additional training specific to this area help to prepare them for this work? So the model that they were trained with, that these particular providers and volunteers were trained with, is a mindfulness-based framework that I proposed back in 2010, and it's called ATTEND. And it's basically multifaceted, and it includes attunement to the client and to self and to the relationship. So approaching the client mindfully, approaching the self mindfully, and the therapeutic relationship mindfully. Trust, therapeutic touch, so touch being an important factor oftentimes, egalitarianism, nuance, and then death education. And death education goes two ways, from the provider to the client, and also continuing education for provider. It's important for the providers to continue to learn and grow because we never know all there is to know about this experience. And in fact, the egalitarian aspect of the model encourages humility and encourages providers to allow the client system to be the teacher, allow the client system to guide the therapeutic relationship in a sense. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. And I know you were talking about the nuance and also the death education, including uh, death, dying, and grief, which is also a very unique and personal, depending on the circumstances of each person. So I think that TEND model, it's very, very interesting and very good for the population you're working with. I wish you know, more people were using it. And actually reading your work about the chairman and the founder of the Miss Foundation and all the work you've been doing there, um, it really has a lot of growth in the future to do, I think, uh, in this area. 
In this specific research we're talking, what were you hoping to discover through the study and what major questions or hypotheses were you addressing? Well, I'll get the first part of that question, then Kara can talk about the hypotheses. So I think from our perspective, we were really just overall curious. Kara and I are both longtime practitioners of mindfulness, and I'm a regular meditator, and I believe Kara is too. And so one of the things that I knew from my own personal experience is I've been doing this work for 18 years, and just people will come up to me and go, how do you do that work? Don't you get burned out? Isn't it awful? Don't you have nightmares? And the reality is that I haven't been adversely affected by my work. Conversely, my work has made my heart and my life bigger, not smaller. And it has added to my life, not taken away from my life. And so Kara and I were really curious if that was the case for other people who worked in the organization and who volunteered for us and the clinicians as well. If if in fact they would have experienced the same things. Because anecdotally, I can tell you what really got me curious was about maybe it was six years ago, I had three interns through the school of social work and they didn't want to leave the internship. When the year ended, they were all very upset and didn't want to leave the internship. And they said, one of them came to me and said, you ruined me. I don't feel like I can do anything else. Nothing else feels rewarding to me. So I got to thinking and Karen and I got to talking about this and I thought, is there something about this model and working in this way with this population that creates a deeper sense of connection and kind of profound life satisfaction for people? Because that's what I experienced and I was hearing it from other people too. And so we started talking about it and we know that mindfulness practice has helped both of us. And we know what the literature says about mindfulness practice. And we said, maybe this is part of it. Maybe this is part of it. Let's look at it. So I'll let Kara talk about kind of the hypotheses and how we came to those. Okay. So let me just cover briefly the instruments that we used. This was an online survey that was distributed to all of the volunteers and everyone at the foundation. And then they have the option of whether or not to take it. So the first instrument we used is the Mindful Attention Awareness Scale. It's a very short scale that assesses mindful attention awareness, which is thought to be a key component of mindfulness and thought to be especially related to emotional regulation. And so higher scores on this scale represent a higher level of mindfulness. So that's one measure. The second one we used is called the Professional Quality of Life Scale. And it actually has three subscales. So as I mentioned, we looked at secondary traumatic stress and burnout, but there's also a compassion satisfaction scale, which is basically um, something that results when you have a positive experience of being able to help others. It's kind of the counterpoint to secondary traumatic stress and burnout. It's the sense of feeling connected and enjoying what you're doing. So those are the two measures that we used, and we specifically, we expected that we would find that there was a positive correlation between mindfulness and compassion satisfaction, that as people were more mindful, they would be deriving greater satisfaction from their role working with people who had experienced trauma in this form. We also hypothesized that mindfulness would be inversely related to secondary traumatic stress and burnout, so that if mindfulness goes up, 
risk of burnout and secondary traumatic stress go down and vice versa. Low levels of mindfulness would be associated with higher levels of secondary traumatic stress and burnout. So those were basically our predictions going in. Although we had another hypothesis that we weren't fully able to test due to the small sample size, but we expected that there would be differences between those individuals who had a personal history of trauma. As Dr. Kastori mentioned, most volunteers and practitioners working with this agency have had a traumatic loss, most commonly the death of a child, but some of them haven't had that experience. And so we were interested in seeing if the two groups differed from each other in that way as well. Well, we were unable to test it because there were so few who hadn't experienced the death of a child. Yes, I mean, we we reported what we did find, but we put a strong caveat in there that there were only, I think, seven people who hadn't experienced the death of a child. And so we were very hesitant to draw any substantial conclusions from that. We did find that there were no differences, which was really interesting because prior research suggests that a personal history of a traumatic event can increase your risk of these adverse outcomes, and we didn't find that in this study. Right, which is really important if you think about it. So what prior research suggests, in a sense, is that people who have experienced trauma, people with a history of interpersonal trauma, are at an increased risk of burnout when working with trauma. And yet, this study seemed to show just the opposite. Right, we didn't have enough data and power to run any kind of quantitative analyses, but there are preliminary data that suggest, and it's certainly worthy of further and deeper exploration. If you would have to take a guess of, or just suggest an idea, why is that so? What would you say? Can I just offer a clarification? We did sure. actually run an independent means t-test. So we did run some statistics on it, and we did report those, but we were very cautious in drawing any conclusions. Interpreting, yes, yes. Why that is? <laughs> well, I have some theories as to why that is, and maybe Kara's theories might echo mine. But So mindfulness is about several things. But in this population, the way I see mindfulness working most often is in cultivating very deep self-awareness of our own emotional states and experiences, as well as building what they call affect tolerance or a tolerance for what our culture would call negative emotions. I tend not to label them that way. I feel like they're necessary emotions, but in a sense, mindfulness helps us to endure what would otherwise be the unendurable. And in so doing, when you, once you build up affect tolerance, then you don't experience the kind of pushback, the kind of emotional resistance to adverse experiences, to experiences that cause you, for example, to feel emotional pain, to feel sadness. Not only that, I mean, I'll take it a step further and say these experiences tend to connect us at a deeply, deeply human level. When we are able to sit with someone else in their suffering, turn our hearts outward toward that person go into that dark abyss with them, bear witness to their suffering, we feel deeply connected to them and there's something we get back 
from that. So not only is it, does affect tolerance help protect us, but it gives us the ability to open the door to deeper human connection. And that deeper human connection, that deeper sense of belonging benefits not only the receiver, but the giver. Does it make sense? Yes, yes, very much. So you're saying that the mindfulness not only immune us for some of the the traumatic events, ours and others, but it also works on some of the coping mechanisms that we develop during the years for ourselves and for our clients. It does. So in other words, how I like to say it to my clients when I'm working with clients is I like to say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, what's your grief been like this week? How intense has your grief been? And if they say to me, my grief is at a nine this week in intensity. Okay, so let's talk about coping. How have you been able to cope with your grief? If they say I'm coping at an eight, nine, 10, okay, all right. So they're coping with whatever intense emotions happen to manifest. Conversely, if I talk to, to another client and they say, my grief is at a five, and I say, how's your coping? Oh, my coping is a one. Okay, so they're noticing a greater disparity between their intense emotion and their ability to tolerate and cope with that intense emotion. Well, the same thing goes for providers. Because as providers, we're human beings with emotions too. And especially when you're working in the realm of child death, which is a particularly unique and difficult population recognized in the literature and in clinical practice, providers who have their own children at home, for example, might be talking to someone who lost a three-year-old to cancer, and they may have their own three-year-old at home. So what does that bring up for them? Naturally, it brings up fears and concerns and maybe even terror. Well, the cultivation of deep self-awareness helps us to cope with that because we become aware and because we, we can turn toward the emotion that we're feeling, usually fear. And then the affect tolerance helps us to cope. So we may be having a reaction to this particular client's story of an eight, but if our coping is an eight, then it doesn't interfere with a therapeutic relationship, and then we don't put ourselves at risk. This is a hypothesis, of course. We'd have to test this. But it doesn't put us at risk for vicarious trauma, for diminished life satisfaction, for increased anxiety, all of those kind of what we would call negative psychological outcomes. Yes, yeah, so the mindfulness is a powerful tool here for the service providers. And I wonder if you think that there is any way that we can also teach the clients for a long term to use mindfulness? I will tell you that that's exactly what the model is. So the model is about modeling mindfulness for the client. And when the client is ready, because this is very important, people have to be ready for this type of practice. When the client is ready then you start cultivating that mindfulness practice and helping them to integrate it. We don't use mindfulness to circumvent grief. We don't use mindfulness as a bypass around grief. We use mindfulness as a way to turn toward grief and walk in grief. And that's really a different paradigm, I think, than in predominant culture today. The idea is to eliminate grief, ameliorate grief, overcome grief, make grief go away. This is a model of integration because when we don't integrate, we fragment. 
you know, fragmenting certainly can work at certain times in your life when you need to fragment. But this is a particular time when integration can be really important and can help promote post-traumatic growth. So when clients are ready, if they want to start a sit practice, we'll teach them a sit practice. So you might spend half of your session doing narrative, mindfulness-based narrative therapy, and then you might do the other half of a session teaching meditation or teaching mindful walking or other mindfulness practices. And then there are also accompanying, I don't want to call them homework assignments, but practices that they can take home with them and work with through the week between meetings, between sessions. And all of those things help the client to cultivate their own mindfulness practice, which is unique to them. No two mindfulness practices are alike. This is unique to them. This is, in a sense, the anti-protocol model. This is deeply, deeply individualized based on the client, the circumstances, the historicity of loss, their personal preferences, their religious beliefs and practices or lack of, their family system. Everything is individualized. So it's part of what you call the nuance in that end model, right? Absolutely correct. You know what? I think the work is amazing. The only concern I have that it's with our healthcare system today and the definitions that we have to and require to give in order to the billing system and so on about what is the diagnosis, what is going on with our client, how long are we going to be treating him, and so on. Your approach is so much holistics and so much attending the human being that I wish there will be more room in our system to accept individualized work. Yes, we agree, don't we, Kara? (laughs) We wish the same thing. Do you find that challenging in our, would you like to talk about that a little bit, about where can you take all these wonderful things and actually integrate them in our system? Well, Kira and I have published a couple of papers critiquing the move, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5's move to remove the bereavement exclusion, which makes it possible for a person to be diagnosed with a serious mental illness as early as two weeks after the death of a child, for example. And so we've published a couple of articles critiquing that. Kara, do you want to talk a little bit about what our position was there? And then I'm happy to address how we can navigate that system. Sure. Well, basically, when we looked at, um, we part of what we did is look at other studies that have evaluated the bereavement exclusion. They've tried to determine, you know, is this a useful construct? Should we keep it? Should we remove it? And the best studies all supported keeping the bereavement exclusion, that it did help draw a line between individuals who were experiencing grief that may be very intense, but who are not going to have perhaps long-term psychological problems related to it from individuals who were more likely to go on to have, say, repeated episodes of depression and more severe impairment. So the empirical evidence suggested that keeping the bereavement exclusion was a good idea and even that expanding it might be an even better idea because it used to allow two months in DSM-4, but in DSM-3 it allowed up to a year. And there was actually some good evidence that moving it back to a year would be a better indicator of whether or not someone 
is truly depressed or experiencing grief. So our, right. our position was also that when that many of the studies on depression are conducted with one type of population, namely elderly bereaved spouses, and that their experience and their grief trajectory is not necessarily the same as for someone who has lost a child or for someone who has lost a spouse in a very violent manner, and that you can't just superimpose the trend that you see in one population to every bereaved person. So we had a further concern that even with the bereavement exclusion at at um, allowing for eight weeks in DSM-4, that it wasn't adequate for some populations, particularly for parents who had lost a child. So now, what do we do about that? (laughs) Because it is a difficult position for providers to be in. So if a provider wanted to adopt the ATTEND model, what he or she could do is, for example, use the ICD-10 if they must use a code for billing. That's what some providers I know are doing. Other providers are going to a sliding scale system so that they're bypassing insurance altogether. There are many providers who find, with whom I've spoken, who find that sometimes people are very quite happy to pay their copayment basically as full payment what would otherwise be a co-payment as a full payment. And so in that way, they don't have to use a diagnostic coding system. The reality is, because of the work I do, I know a lot of clinicians, and many of my friends are clinicians, and one of my good friends who is a clinician said to me, as the DSM-5 was in press with the bereavement exclusion taken out, by the way, let me go on the record and saying, I'm not happy with the DSM-4 either. I'm not happy with eight weeks. I don't think eight weeks is appropriate. I do agree with the evidence in the field test that one year you experience less risk of false positives. Having said that, the DSM-4 was enacted long before I could engage in any vociferous opposition to that change. So what ends up happening is these providers, in a sense, have decided that they agree with this position, the position of many, many who have critiqued the DSM-5 move and said, you know, grief is not mental illness, and have chosen to bypass that and just go with a sliding scale system that allows people to make a payment and it's, in a sense, grief therapy or grief counseling. And there are people on a sliding scale who might be able to pay $25 for an hour session, which is usually actually less than many co-payments nowadays. And then there are people who could pay 60 or 100 or $150 or maybe more. I don't know. I don't get into that kind of detail with providers who use our particular model. But I can tell you that one of my colleagues, as I was saying earlier, when this change was about to be made, she said, yeah, I know it's not real, but isn't it a noble lie? And that is to diagnose someone with major depressive disorder so that they can get the services paid for. And that to me seems like a a gross ethical breach to offer up a noble lie just so the insurance company will pay for services. I don't know why that would not be problematic ethically for any of us. So if we're saying that someone has major depressive disorder and we knowingly know, we knowingly assign that code as a noble lie, (laughs) that seems like malpractice to me. Yes, it's malpractice that the system doesn't give you another option. This is true. And that's why I would love to see social workers organize and say, no, we need another system. 
a person-centered system, not a medical-centered system, not a pathology-centered system. We need a more humane system, at the very least with this population. And because this is my area of expertise, I don't go beyond that, but I have colleagues who would say we need a more humane system for all. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Are we causing more harm? And if we're causing more harm, and if we're doing things that are unethical, then it's time to stop. Then it's time to stop. And so, again, a lot of our clinicians are doing things like going to a sliding scale, ability to pay, or using the ICD and just using adjustment disorder as a diagnostic code rather than something like major depressive disorder or bipolar. I mean, grief is bipolar. One day you feel like you're okay. You know, you're like, okay, I can get through this day. And the next day you're, you can't get out of bed. That's normal grief. That's what grief looks like. That's what grief feels like. That's not bipolar disorder. So it gets very, very sticky. And anytime you have a science where you could put the same person in front of four different clinicians and come up with four different diagnoses, then you have to question the soundness of the process, right? Yes, and have more mindful and holistic approach to each individual. Absolutely, and much more humane, because this particular framework is a humane framework. We're about working with this family in their circumstance, in their time, and treating them with civic love and compassion, and it works. It's working we're seeing the benefits of it with these populations. Does that mean they don't have grief? No. Does it mean they don't have anxiety? No. It's normal to have anxiety. If you've lost a child in a car accident, what would be abnormal is not to be fearful when your other children get in the car. That's the abnormality. It's not having fear. It's not having fear. We've made that which is normal abnormal. So what do you think the implications of your findings and of all of that to other helping professionals, not only social workers? Because social workers are a certain population, which we all belong to, but all the other people that these grieving families and parents are working with, all the doctors, all even the lawyers sometimes, and all the other helping circle that they're surrounded with. Can I clarify a few things or just sure. provide additional information that I, th- I think supports everything that you said? And I do want to add that not everyone in this sample was a social worker, so we did have a, people from various backgrounds. But um, I just wanted to be a little bit more specific about what we did find because um, w- one piece in particular is very interesting and supports uh, everything that Dr. Ketchtori was saying. Um, So we did find the three relationships that we hypothesized would be there. There was a statistically significant relationship between mindfulness and compassion satisfaction, a positive relationship, and an inverse relationship between mindfulness and burnout and secondary traumatic stress. So what was kind of surprising and that I didn't necessarily expect to see was evident just from the descriptive statistics So the mean mindfulness score for our sample was 4.25, and it's slightly higher than the norms reported by the developer of the instrument, which is 4.2. So it's slightly higher, but considering that the people who the the instrument was normed on weren't necessarily working with trauma. So it was very interesting that we had such a high mean level of mindfulness in our group suggesting that maybe something about the training, the model, is effective at increasing that mindfulness. 
And secondly, we had a fairly high score for compassion satisfaction, average score. It was 42.39. And generally, any score above 42 indicates high satisfaction. So that was very interesting that we had that. And also, we had relatively low scores for secondary traumatic stress and for burnout, 20.66 for secondary traumatic stress and 19.63 for burnout. And what's interesting in this case is that any score below 22 indicates low risk. And so the mean score was low risk. And when we looked at particularly who scored in the low range and who scored in the high range, the high range that indicates there could be some problems, nobody scored in the high range in the entire sample. So nobody was, according to this instrument, at risk for burnout or secondary traumatic stress. And in addition, nobody scored in the low range for compassion satisfaction. And actually most of them, 71%, scored in the, really, in the high range. So what was really interesting was just to see where the scores fell on these instruments because it, it suggested that there's something about this group. There's something here that is protective against these things for them. And I, I, we thought that was really interesting because you wouldn't necessarily expect that. Normally you see a, a spread. Some people score in the low range, some people score in the moderate range, and some people score in the high range. But uh, it was all pretty consistent. Yeah, yeah, that's good, Kara. Thank you. Yeah, and actually these statistics are really impressive. I'm just hoping there is a way we can take it forward. Well, okay, and so how we take it forward, really, I mean, really, mental health institutions should be training their their providers, I would say in mindfulness, but I think it has to go beyond mindfulness. I think it has to go into death and trauma because if you look at most people who are suffering with mental health diagnoses, they're not trauma experience free. So many of them have suffered different varying types of trauma to varying degrees, but it's something that everyone in the helping professions needs to be prepared to deal with, needs to understand the evidence, needs to understand what works, what doesn't work, and trained in mindfulness as well. So Kira and I also just published some research on my, I teach a traumatic death education course at Arizona State University, graduate level, and the findings are very, very interesting and may have implications for these findings. And the implications of that is that the trauma and death education course for graduate students increased not only empathy but mindfulness or seemed to have a relationship to increases in empathy and mindfulness. Now, this is really important because from my experience anecdotally and empirically, it suggests that perhaps it's the death education piece that's really, really important and often missing in pedagogical models today. So I think we need to get better at training providers of mental health, doctors, nurses, first responders. They need better training not only on mindfulness and deep self-awareness and cultivating a mindful practice, but also trauma and death, which I know, you know, I mean, not, you know, Kara and I can kind of clear out a party, you know, when we walk in, people know what we do and, you know, we're not very popular because it's hard to talk about this stuff. It makes us confront our own mortality and the mortality of those we love, which is very hard to do. It's very hard to contemplate that. I get it. 
and yet people think that it's going to paralyze them in some way and actually what it does is it gives them the opportunity to live more fully that's the big secret here is that studying death gives you life yeah and understanding that not like any other diagnosis death is actually part of everybody's life and the grief is part of most people's life it's inevitable I mean unless you go through your life without loving you're going to grieve at some point it's a common human experience it's nearly universal yes so where is the research you're standing right now like looking forward and from now like what are you working on what's the next step right now okay first I want to say I do think this can be expanded to other settings we do need more research on the model but what we've seen so far is very promising and so for instance this could be used in a hospice setting and I worked as a hospice social worker after having been trained in this model and just found it immensely helpful even in that setting and because also you do encounter trauma in a setting like hospice people tend to think that it's elderly people at the end of life kind of going peacefully but you actually see victims of car accidents and young people and people who are, you know, in a vegetative state after a suicide attempt. So you do see all these things in other settings and not just hospice also, but you see these kinds of things working with children in schools, you know, and the trauma in their lives and loss in their lives. So I think it is very applicable across a range of settings. And that's one avenue I'd love to see more research in in the future. But as of what, what we have going right now, as Dr. Katchtori mentioned, we just had an article published on death education and the benefits for students. But we're also moving ahead with research on mindfulness and bereaved parents. So we are working right now on evaluating a grief-focused mindfulness retreat for bereaved parents and looking at its impact on trauma symptoms, depressive symptoms, anxious symptoms, as well as mindfulness and self-compassion. And then we're following up the quantitative piece with qualitative interviews to really understand from participants' point of view what was helpful, what was some of their concerns, and how they experienced this, kind of how some of them have integrated mindfulness into their lives as a result of the retreat. And so it's a really interesting project. It's going to take a while to get all the data. So what we have so far is very encouraging. We'll be adding people to the sample. So right now it's a pretty small sample, but we did find that compared to a comparison group, so people who didn't go to the retreat, there are statistically significant changes on most of the measures. So um, depression, anxiety, trauma symptoms, and uh, increases in self-compassion and mindfulness. So we'll run all the stats again when we have the larger sample. But right now it's very encouraging. Very interesting. I think you have a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in, in our world that it's so unpersonalized and it's hard for many people to see how the mindfulness is coming into the actual work of every day. Anything else you would like to add? You know, maybe just a couple of words about the limitations. You know, this is really interesting, promising research, but I don't want to overstate the findings. We included in our limitation section that this was a relatively small sample, and we weren't able to fully test the differences between bereaved parents and non-bereaved parents due to there not being many non-bereaved parents in the group. 
also, anytime you're doing a study, there are strong points and weak points, and we don't have as much information as we would have liked about the actual time that each participant spent volunteering. There could be differences between people who work full-time and those who don't, but we just can't tell this from this sample. So basically, we're really impressed with what we found, but um, would need to test this further before. And I would love to see more data on this particular model in different populations. So what I'd really love is for us to be able to go in and do some training for different agencies who don't serve specifically bereaved parents or the traumatically bereaved and test this model in that population because I can't see how this model would not benefit all populations because of not only the benefits to the individual who they're helping, but also because of the benefits to the providers. I mean, there's a dearth of research, but it's increasing as time passes on the importance of the provider's state of mind and state of heart on outcomes for patients and clients. So not just because of the effects that, it ha that this model has on the client, but also the effects that it has on the provider and thus the relationship. I call it a tripartite effect. And because of that, I would like to see more data generated from within other populations. Yeah, that was actually my concluding question is how do we take that for other types of traumas? Because it seems promising for many other traumas as well. Absolutely. And I think it has to come from administrators. I think administrators have to see the research. I think administrators have to see the cost-benefit ratio here. The reality is this is a really inexpensive and very effective, lots of bang for the buck. As far as administrators are concerned, that's important to them. And so if we can get this kind of information into the hands of administrators, those who would make the decisions on training and practice models, just let them do some research. Just let them do some pre-posting, just some simple t-tests even, just to show effect. Because my guess would be that in many populations, we would have an effect. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. And Dr. Cacciatore and Cara Thielman, thank you again for participating today. Thank you. I also want to say, can I just say briefly, I have the best research assistant on earth. So Tara's awesome and it helps when you're doing this kind of work. It really helps to have an amazing research assistant. She really is. So stay in touch with her. Watch her because she's on fire. <laughs> okay. I will. Thank you very Good. much. Good. Thank you. Okay. And thank you, Cara. Thank you. You have been listening to Dr. Joanne Cacciatore and Ms. Kara Thielman talk about their research with those who provide care to people experiencing traumatic bereavement. We hope you have found this episode informative. I'm your host, Charles Sims. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi. I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.